If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it to the book of James, chapter 2. In just a few minutes, I'll begin reading in verse 14 as we continue our sermon series this morning. Again, if I haven't met you, I'm Matthew, a lead pastor here. And as hard as it's been to be physically separated, I'm so grateful for the gift of this technology uh, that lets us feed together on the Word of God week after week. And I think one of the most common objections to Christianity is hypocrisy. Maybe you've heard that. Uh, It often goes like this, uh, both in person and online. I used to go to church, but as I got older, I realized most of the people who went to church on Sunday lived no differently than the world every other day of the week. And the whole thing just started to feel like a sham. I I guess you could say the the lack of authenticity just kind of wore me out. And so I decided that what really matters isn't what you say you believe or whether you go to church or not, but but whether you're a good person, right? That's what the world really needs. Less hate, more love. Have you heard that before? Or maybe you thought or, or said those very words yourself. If, if someone said what I just said to you, how would you respond, friend? What would you say in response? Well, I think several things need to be said. First, on a very real level, we are all hypocrites, <laughs> okay? Every one of us has said or known in our head that one thing was right, but then actually done the exact opposite, haven't we? So we say things to family members and friends that that we know we shouldn't say. Or we fail to love or or care for someone else because, well, it would just be inconvenient. So if we're going to be authentic... Let's start by admitting that we are all hypocrites in one way or another. That's the first thing I would say. Here's the second. Keep in mind that Jesus is just as, if not more concerned about hypocrisy than you are. (laughs) He didn't cover up hypocrisy. He didn't turn a blind eye. He, He called hypocrites whitewashed tombs and other things that didn't make people very happy with him. So so don't write off Jesus, okay, or deal, avoid dealing with Jesus simply because of the hypocrisy of those who claim to be his people. So Christianity has an institutional shape, a church shape, but, but it isn't the religious product of an institution. Okay, Christianity is the good news of Jesus the Son of God incarnate, who came to save hypocrites like you and me from the judgment we deserve. That's the second thing. But here's the last thing I would say. And this is really important. I would simply say this. You're right. You're right. If the Christians around you claim that their faith is genuine, but lack any works of obedience in their life, you are absolutely right to question the authenticity of their profession. And in fact, that's exactly what James does in James 2, verses 14 to 26. Why does he do this? Because he knows that salvation requires a faith that works. Hear the word of the Lord. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, 
is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one? You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. He was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works? When she received the messengers and sent them out by another way, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. May the Lord bless this preaching of his holy word. I've said before that the entire book of James is designed to shake us out of our spiritual apathy and awaken us to a life of real faith, a faith that that thinks and feels and acts the way God himself thinks and feels and and acts. James teaches us that, that Christianity isn't passive. It's not a religious affiliation or or a badge on your shirt or a fish on your car. It's a faith that works. Hence the title of the sermon series, A Faith That Works. And it's a point that James has emphasized in in various ways since the very beginning of chapter one. But in the second half of chapter two, friends, as, as he approaches the middle of this letter, he doubles down on this very issue in a passage that is both the theological center of the book and, I might add, the most controversial section in this whole thing. So put on your seatbelts. But what I don't want you to fixate on, friend, is what James is not saying. Or how James works with the Apostle Paul. I want you to hear what he is saying. Because this is a passage where James shines a bright light on the danger of spiritual hypocrisy. Reminding you and me, not once, not twice, but three times in verses 17, 20, and 26, that salvation requires a faith that works. James is teaching us. He's warning you. Right standing with God. Vindication in the courtroom of heaven is impossible apart from a faith that works. So why is that the case? Well, he gives a number of answers. I'm going to point out at least three of them, okay? Reason number one, why does salvation require faith that works? Reason number one, because works are the evidence of genuine faith. The evidence of genuine faith. We're looking at verses 14 to 17 here. You know, in typical style, James establishes, he kind of cuts to the chase, the crux of the issue, from the very beginning of the passage. And in this case, he does it through a rhetorical question. So look at verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Now, when you hear the word works in James, the word works, (laughs) don't think works of merit, okay? Or an attempt to earn favor with God through obedience to God. I want you to think deeds or actions or fruit. Okay, in other words, when he says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works, James is saying, what what good is it if someone says, I'm a Christian, I believe in Jesus, but the way I live is really no different as a result. Can that faith Save him, faith, 
Well, the very grammar of the question indicates the answer is no. But, but in order to really understand what's at stake here, I think we need to slow down and consider what does James mean by save or salvation? You know, the Bible tells us that our greatest problem as human beings, friends, is not our failure to be a better version of ourselves. It is our failure to love the Lord our God with all our heart and soul and mind and strength and to love our neighbor as ourselves, as we were praying God would help us to do earlier today. Our greatest problem is our collective disobedience of the law of God, the law of our creator, to whom we're all accountable. As James reminded us in the first half of chapter two, every one of us is what? A transgressor of the law and deserves to be judged accordingly. And so because that's our greatest problem, mercy is our greatest need, right? We, we need a way for our sins to be forgiven, to become righteous as, as God himself is righteous, for that's the only way we can ever know the joy of restored relationship with him. And that's exactly what Jesus came to do. He lived your life, friend. He died your death. He, he rose from the grave, making a way for you to be saved or rescued from sin and death and brought back into right standing with God. And that's what we call the gospel or the good news of salvation. Relationship with God, the gospel says, isn't a spiritual blessing that we earn by doing more good than bad because none of us are good enough. So what does Jesus do? Jesus earns it for you and for us. Which is why the apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter two that our salvation is by grace. It comes to us as an undeserved gift. Remember that. But how do we receive it? Well, we receive it through faith, through obedient trust in Jesus. But but listen, sometimes we con ourselves into thinking that something less than wholehearted obedient trust in Jesus is sufficient. That's what James is getting at here. But And the objection sounds like something like this. Of course I'm a person of faith. I'm a person of faith. I believe in God. You know, that that he's real and all. And Jesus seems like a good guy who did some pretty cool things. I I definitely consider myself a Christian. But you know, I I try to not stress out about the whole obeying the Bible thing. I mean, (laughs) there's just so many different interpretations out there. I, I, I really think it's just... It's being a loving person that really counts, you know? So, so yeah, if, if you believe in Jesus and don't do anything really terrible, I think you're good to go. Or at least you've got as good a chance of salvation as anyone else. Heard that before? <laughs> Said that before? Well, friend, that kind of attitude might sound humble. But James says it's the height of folly. Why? Because God hasn't left it up to us to define what faith is, okay? Faith isn't a a giant blank that we get to fill in with whatever sort of religious belief or mental assent suits our fancy. Okay, biblical faith, genuine faith, Mind you, the only kind of faith that God accepts and through which we receive the free gift of salvation is faith of a certain sort. It's a complete and total reliance on the work Jesus has done to rescue our souls that displays itself in a lifestyle of obedience to Jesus' words. Okay, practicing the good works or actions that he commands us to do. That's what faith is. You know, after summarizing the the truth and the cleansing power of the gospel, I've just been talking about the substance of our faith. The Apostle Paul writes in Titus 3, verse 8, 
I want you to insist on these things, the truth of the gospel, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Why would Paul say that? Because it's the presence of good works, friend, that demonstrate or evidence the authenticity of our faith. That's what James is saying here in this first point. So, illustration. If you ran into a brother or sister in Christ who was, verse 15, poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, what would you think if your friend standing next to you said to that person, verse 16, go in peace, be warmed and and filled, but didn't give them any food or any clothing. What would you think? Well, you would conclude your friend doesn't really mean what they're saying, right? If they genuinely wanted them to be clothed and fed, they wouldn't just send a text with thoughts and prayers. They would cook them a meal, (laughs) They would buy them some clothes, right? A a lack of action, in other words, corresponding to their profession of love, seriously undermines the credibility of their profession of love. And you'd probably conclude they don't really love that person. Well, James is simply saying that our relationship with God is no different at all. It's the same sort of thing. If our faith isn't confirmed and backed up by corresponding deeds. It's not genuine faith. It's false faith. It's a religious trapping. It's not the real deal. Real faith and the only kind of faith God accepts and through which we are saved is wholehearted dependence on Jesus that makes itself known through works of obedience. Think of it this way. First thing James is saying, the first reason why Salvation requires works is because submission to Jesus is the test of faith in Jesus. Whereas he says in verse 17, faith by itself, mental assent or or belief absent a lifestyle of obedience isn't just weak or insufficient. It is dead. It's non-existent. And that's the first reason salvation requires a faith that works. Works give evidence. They're the evidence of genuine faith. Here's the second, and it's kind of like the first. Builds on the first. Reason number two, why does salvation require a faith that works? Reason two, works are inseparable from genuine faith. Or they can't be separated from genuine faith. Looking here at verses 18 through 19, just briefly. You know, we get to this point in the passage, and and I think it becomes really clear that that James isn't a new pastor. (laughs) He's clearly been around the block a few times. And and he knows how we all try to, to wiggle ourselves out of acknowledging that our profession of faith without works is dead. They tried to do it in the first century, clearly. And we're still trying to do it in the same way today. And it goes like this. Faith without works is dead? Well, James, I mean, that might be true for you. But don't you go forcing your religious beliefs on me. I mean, dude, if works work for you, great. If faith works for you, great. To each his own. Whatever road you pick, I mean, we're all going to wind up in the same place, right? You have faith, I have works. So so James, just stop freaking out, okay, man? You're freaking out. And and just stop questioning the salvation of everyone who doesn't keep all the rules you think they're supposed to keep. They believe in Jesus, right? Isn't it all about Jesus, James? That's enough, okay, man? So just chill out. Well, how does James reply to that? Look at verse 18. He doesn't hold back. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. 
What's he saying? He's saying, don't don't allow yourself to think, in other words, that, that we have this thing over here called saving faith that we then get to choose to express in whatever way suits our fancy. If if you want to express it through works, through obedience to God's word, have at it. If you want to express it through meditative rock climbing where you get in touch with the spiritual essence of reality, more power to you. No. Okay, verse 18 says that's utter nonsense. Why? Because works are endemic to faith. Okay, they're, they're part and parcel of faith. They they are what faith looks like and how faith expresses itself. So so we call them different things because one is more internal and the other more external, but but they're actually a package deal. (laughs) They're two sides of the same coin. You, You couldn't separate the two of them even if you tried. And therefore, we must never think or speak as if we could add works to this thing called genuine faith because genuine faith by definition is active friend it's a faith that works a working faith a faith deed oh but james 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 you you don't know my heart man come on i know what i believe I know the Bible. I I know the historic creeds of our faith. I can recite it to you. I grew up in church for crying out loud, man. Did you forget that? I mean, okay, honestly, like I too believe God is one and all the other stuff the Bible teaches. Verse 19, you believe that God is one? You do well. Even the demons believe. Shudder. I told you he doesn't hold back. I mean, does, is he saying that demons have genuine faith? Well, of course not. The kind of belief that James refers to here is the same sort of dead faith he's decried from the very beginning. It's, it's mere mental assent, a, a cognitive acknowledgement of the truth that never actually translates into obedient submission to the authority of Christ. Even the demons know in their minds what is true about God. The, the problem is the utter absence of faith in God. Demons don't have that. Because knowledge of Christ and faith in Christ, friend, are not the same thing. You can't have the latter without the former, but the presence of the former never guarantees the latter. And therein, my friend, please hear this, lies a great warning to all of you who, like me, have grown up in the church. To all of you, talking to you, young person, okay? Don't take a bathroom break right now. All of you to whom the Lord has granted the tremendous privilege of being raised in the household of faith. And the danger that lies before you is the danger of assuming that simply because you know the truth about Jesus, that you have a genuine saving faith in Jesus. Don't assume that, my friend. Okay, don't. Test yourself, as Paul says. Examine yourself. Is your professed, out of your mouth, faith showing itself, evidencing itself, proving its authenticity through the presence of works, through a pattern of obedience to King Jesus? Ask yourself that question. Ask the Holy Spirit to help you answer that question. And ask other people around you who know you well, maybe starting with your parents, to help you answer that question. And if you think you've heard that question from me before in James, gold star to you, because you have. It's a theme he just circles back to again and again. Faith and works are inseparable. They're a package deal. They can't be separated. That's the second reason salvation requires a faith that works. Works are the evidence of genuine faith. 
Works are inseparable from genuine faith. But here's the third reason. Salvation requires a faith that works. Works are necessary for justification. Works are necessary for justification. Now, here's where we need to be really careful with our terms. Okay? And I'm going to linger here. Lord, help us. Because there's an important lesson for us here in verses 20 to 26. Okay, not only about why salvation requires a faith that works, but about how to read our Bibles. Let me just mention a word about that, okay? Imagine if, if I were shopping with you at DSW, the shoe store. And we're walking down the aisles, and I said, man, that's a bad pair of shoes. What would you conclude? Well, you would assume something is wrong with them, right? They're, they're ugly, they're broken, they're out of style, or something like that. That's a bad pair of shoes. Well, what if I said, walking down a different aisle, dude, check it out. That is a bad pair of shoes. Well, what might you conclude then? Well, well, if you used your urban slang dictionary, you might realize that I actually mean that's a really good-looking pair of shoes or an incredibly fine pair of shoes. Okay, same word, but different meaning. So think about it. How do we know what James means when he uses a word like works? Or as he's about to in verse 21, justify. Do, do we just... Remember how another biblical author, maybe the Apostle Paul, because he wrote a lot in the Bible, uses one of those words and, and assume that James means the same thing. We, we do a, a little word study and just kind of import meaning from one book into another book. No, <laughs> we don't, okay? Here's what we do. Three things, not just in this passage, but whenever you're reading your Bible, all right? This is free. First, we recognize words in the Bible have a range of meaning. Second, we give priority to the immediate context in determining what the original author meant. And third, we let Scripture interpret Scripture, okay? Remembering that there is one divine author who ultimately stands behind the unified canon of God's Word. In other words, our our starting point Not just here, but every time we read the Bible, grounded in the truthfulness and unchangeableness of God himself is the humility that says what the Lord says in one part of the Bible cannot be contradicted by what the Lord says in another part of the Bible. We start with that. And thus, whenever we encounter an apparent contradiction, we do not assume a lack of clarity or consistency on God's part we assume a lack of full understanding on our part, even as we work hard to harmonize in our little minds what is gloriously unified in his own. It's called faith-seeking understanding. Or, or reading the Bible on its own terms, in its own categories. And all of that, okay, is really important in working to understand what James says next in verses 20 to 21 as he introduces a third reason why salvation requires a faith that works. Look at verse 20. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? Now, in the Bible, the word we translate as justified, like I just said, has a range of meaning. Range of meaning. In the overwhelming majority of cases, overwhelming majority, it means to declare or vindicate or pronounce someone as righteous. Okay, and that's what Paul means, for example, when he speaks of God justifying the ungodly. He's referring to to what happens the moment someone becomes a Christian. What happens? What's the good news of the gospel, right? God the Father, having united us to his Son through the gift of repentance and faith, 
He credits the perfect righteousness of Christ to our account. And then declares us, in view of that, to be righteous in the courtroom of heaven. And that's not legal fiction, okay? That's a spiritual reality made possible by your faith union with our covenant representative, Jesus, who lived a perfect life on your behalf. And Jesus actually uses the word justify in the same sense of divine declaration or vindication in Matthew 12, 36 through 37. Only this time, it's not the initial justification we receive at the beginning of our Christian life. It's the final justification, the, the divine act of acquittal and vindication we're still waiting for on the day of judgment. Verse 36, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified. And by your words, you will be condemned. And so there's a critical sense, Christian, that your justification in a declarative sense is both already and not yet. You have been justified, and one day, Lord willing, you will be justified. Our our initial justification anticipates or looks forward to our final justification, but they are not the same thing because they occur at different times. It's really important. Many parts of our faith, our glorious inheritance in Christ, are both already and not yet. So that's, That's the first meaning or the way the word justification in overwhelming number of cases it's used in a declarative or vindicative sense. But in a couple other places, it it doesn't mean that directly. It refers more to a demonstration or proof that someone is righteous. Not declaration so much as demonstration. So for example, Psalm 51.4 says, God is justified by his words. Is somebody else declaring God righteous? No, God is demonstrating or proving his own righteousness. Or in Matthew 11, 19, Jesus says, wisdom is justified by her deeds. And in both cases, first God and then wisdom, are justified in the sense that they are shown or prove themselves to be righteous. Okay, so bottom line, all I'm saying here is that when the Bible says someone is justified, it almost always refers to a declaration of righteousness and sometimes to a demonstration of righteousness. So when James says in verse 21, stay with me, (laughs) that Abraham was justified by works, what in the world does he mean? Well, we know he doesn't mean Abraham received an initial declaration of righteousness and a corresponding welcome into relationship with God on the basis of works, not faith. Why do we know that's not true? Because of what the Lord himself said to Abraham back in Genesis 15, 6, immediately after he promises to give this childless guy descendants as numerous as the stars. What do we read? And he, Abraham, believed the Lord. He believed the Lord, trusted the Lord, put his faith in the Lord, believed his word. And he counted it, the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. And in Romans 4, 4 to 5, the the apostle Paul recognizes the tremendous significance of the fact that, that God's initial declaration of righteousness in Abraham's life was a gift he received by faith, not a reward he earned by works. What does Paul say? Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So, if James doesn't mean Abraham earned his initial declaration of righteousness from God through what was arguably the greatest work in his life, his obedient willingness to to give his own son back to the Lord. 
what does James mean when he says Abraham was justified by his works? Well, I think he means three things. And I recognize there's a lot of controversy about this, but, but I trust this will serve you. I want to show you how I get here, okay? First, James means that the faith by which Abraham was initially justified wasn't some sort of mental assent or casual belief, okay? It was active reliance, obedient trust, a faith that works. And you notice how James uses Genesis 15, 6 and verses 22 to 23 to, to make a different, though not at all contradictory, point than the one Paul made back in Romans 4. What does James say? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that said, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So, so where Paul takes a chronological perspective on Abraham and, and ask, at what point in his life did God declare him to be righteous? And of course, answers, at the point he first believed the word of the Lord by faith. James takes a more holistic or total life view of the situation and asks, what sort of man, holistically, does the Lord justify categorically? And the answer, of course, is a man like Abraham who exercises obedient faith. Because the very faith the Lord rewarded in Genesis 15, the sole basis, mind you, of his initial justification was the very sort of faith that culminated in obedience. Namely, the work of sacrificing Isaac in Genesis 22. James is reminding us that that faith he first exercised and by which he was initially justified wasn't a workless faith or faith alone in the false sense, as James says in verse 24. It was what? Belief fulfilled or brought to its ultimate end through obedience. James isn't saying Abraham earned his justification from God by works. He's using Abraham as an illustration of the entire point of this passage, that the only kind of faith God accepts, the only kind of faith by which anyone, Abraham included, is ever justified or saved at any point in time, to use the language of James 1.14, is a faith that works. It's not mere mental assent the first thing he means, I think. Second, when James says that Abraham was justified by works, there's a sense in which he means that Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac conclusively demonstrated or showed, the language of James 2.18, the righteousness that was already his by faith. So what does the Lord say to Abraham in Genesis 22.12 after he sacrifices Isaac? Offers him to the Lord. The Lord says, now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. So in this sense, Abraham was justified or shown to be righteous by virtue of the presence of works, no less than we are today. And finally, when, when James says Abraham was justified by works, I think he means that, that God responded to Abraham's paradigmatic work of obedience, the sacrifice of Isaac, by vindicating him with a decisive declaration of righteousness. Okay, affirming the continued presence of the spiritual reality that first came into existence back in Genesis 15. And we know that because the Lord repeats in Genesis 22 the very same sort of promises that he made to Abraham back in Genesis 15. Genesis 22, 16. What's God say? Because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as, as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And your offspring, in your offspring, shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Why? Because you have obeyed 
my voice. Think about that. The Lord isn't contradicting himself. He isn't saying, Abraham, hey, uh, I hate to break it to you, but, but at first you were justified by faith. <laughs> that was kind of my MO in Genesis 15. But now you're going to be justified by obedience. Surprise! No, no. The Lord is simply telling Abraham what remains true for every Christian today. Divine vindication is always based on the obedience of faith. But what if that doesn't happen? Well, what if our supposed faith, your supposed faith, never issues in any works? What if obedience is, is MIA in your life? Well, what then? Will you, will that person be justified? We're saved in the language of verse 14 on the final day of judgment? Absolutely not, my friend. Absolutely not. Remember the, the future orientation and warning of Jesus' words in Matthew 12, 36. By your words, you will be justified and by your words, you will be condemned. Okay, and what does Jesus say just a few chapters later? Matthew 25, 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. And then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry. You gave me food. I was thirsty. You gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Friends, is James teaching is Jesus teaching in this very passage salvation by works? No, no. Jesus is saying the same thing James does when he draws on the example of the Lord's relationship with Abraham. Listen, please hear this. Our initial justification is on the basis of faith and faith alone. The working sort, that is. But our final justification. And in Abraham's case, an interim vindication, anticipating his final justification, requires the presence of the sort of works genuine faith necessarily displays. And it's for that reason that James warns us in verse 24, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And once again, our friend Doug Moo puts it really well. If a sinner can get into relationship with God only by faith, the ultimate validation of that relationship takes into account the works that true faith must inevitably produce. We don't have time to look at this in detail, but, but the example of Rahab in Joshua 6 it's very similar, friend. Why, why did the Lord save her? Okay, or allow her to live when all the other residents of Jericho were destroyed? Well, well Hebrews 11.31 gives us the answer, actually. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. The Lord vindicated her on a very real day of judgment Declaring her to be righteous on account of her obedient faith. What, what, what do all these examples, Abraham, Rahab, the very words of Jesus himself teach us? They teach us that works are necessary for justification. Okay, whether initial or final or somewhere between those two, non-working faith, mere mental assent, is never the basis for divine vindication of any sort. 
And so, friend, if you're clinging to that sort of false faith, if you know all kinds of truth about God or about the Bible, but but your affections and your actions are no different than the world, then you will not be saved. That's what James is saying. Okay, verse 26 couldn't be clear. Faith apart from works is dead. Non-working faith will do you no good, has never done anyone any good, and will certainly not do you a lick of good on the final day of judgment. Salvation requires a faith that works, a working sort of faith. Why? Because works are the evidence of genuine faith. Works are inseparable from genuine faith, and works are necessary for justification. And might I add, it is entirely unfortunate that so many in the history of the church have just concluded on a face value reading of this passage that James and Paul were at odds. They're not. They're simply addressing different issues in different contexts in different ways. So with all that said, the divinely intended response, please hear this, to James' warning isn't to try to get busy adding works to our faith so we can be assured of salvation. Okay, the right response is to test yourself. To take an honest look at your life and ask, do, do, do I see a pattern of works that testify to the authenticity of my faith and give me confidence of vindication on the final day of judgment? Ask yourself that question, friend. If, if the answer is no, if you don't see that pattern, then run to Jesus. Okay, ask him to give you, because he will, the gift of genuine faith, a faith that issues in a life of good works. And, and keep in mind as you're asking that you can never earn God's favor through your faith or your works, okay? Good works don't confer righteousness, but they are required for righteousness. For absent the obedience of faith, you will not be saved. That's the whole point. And if you ask that question and, and you do see a pattern of good works in your life, what do you do, friend? You need to praise God. <laughs> praise be to God. Not, not pats on the back. Praise be to God. And don't stop running to Jesus. Why not? Because it is Christ and Christ alone who sustains and nurtures a living and breathing, working faith in your heart by his power until the day he returns. And so I leave you now with the words of the inimitable Martin Luther. Oh, he says, it is a living, busy, active, mighty thing, this faith. It is impossible for it to not be doing good things incessantly. It does not ask whether good works are to be done, but before the question is asked, it has already done this and is constantly doing them. Lord Jesus, We need your help. We confess to you right now that that we are not immune to the spiritual danger of hypocrisy. Thank you for loving us by reminding us that the salvation we need, our greatest need, requires a faith that works. And Lord Jesus, I pray that we would not be so concerned about protecting the gracious source of our salvation that we neglect the gracious goal of our salvation. You have saved us by grace that we might walk in good works by the same grace. And so I ask now, Lord, that that you would help us to hope in you, not good works, 
but that as we hope in you, you would cause us to abound in every good work to the praise and glory and honor of you, Jesus, who keeps us and supports us and sustains us and picks us back up when we fall down and fixes our eyes on you and keeps sanctifying us until the day you bring us home. Lord, help us to not fall into apathy by thinking we can be saved without a faith that works. Give us a humility. Give us a courage. Give us a power by your spirit to be a people who practice a faith that works. We ask in your name. Amen. I'm so grateful as as St. Augustine once prayed when he cried out to the Lord so many years ago. Lord Jesus, command what you will and will what you command. That's the kind of God we serve. And with that in view, I want to pray this benediction over you from the book of 2 Thessalonians. I was flipping to 1 Thessalonians. Chapter 1 and verse 11. And before I do this, friend, let me, let me just thank you for your continued generosity uh, and faithfully giving to support the gospel ministry of our church during this time. You can continue to give online. I encourage you to do that even when we, Lord willing, are able to gather in person soon with those for whom it's wise to do so. Uh, We won't be able to pass offering baskets, (laughs) so we'll need to continue to give online. Thank you for doing that. That is a work of faith, and you have excelled in that. But receive this benediction from the Lord. To this end, I pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus this week, this very day, may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Go in peace, my friends, to love and serve the Lord. God bless you.